Well, uh, thank you, Steve, for that, um, I guess, slightly over-the-top int introduction, which I, which I nonetheless really appreciated. Um, it, it, it's uh, wonderful to be able to come here and visit Steve, uh, uh, who doesn't get out to California as much as he used to. But I, I really want to thank uh, the Mershon Center and the History Department for thinking to uh, invite me and give me the opportunity to meet uh, you people and uh, get your response uh, to my discussion and also to have a chance to see Columbus, Ohio in, in the fall. All I know about Columbus, Ohio is that up till now is that they have this horrendous football team that always defeats whatever team that I am rooting for at the time. But I, I'm going to try to avoid seeing that while I'm here because um, it always comes out bad. But uh, it looks like a, a very beautiful town and, of course, it's a tremendous history department, a tremendous university, and it's, it's really great to have an opportunity just to skim the surface. I know that's all I'll be able to do in the next uh, few days when I'm here. Okay, so I, what I, what I um, want to do first is put on my glasses. Um, Steve reminding me that 1958 was when we met. Uh, I, I tried to do the subtraction, and it's something like... 40, 48 years, uh, it's kind of staggering. But um, so I have these glasses and a lot of other uh, defects. Um, but uh, I, still wanna, I still hope I can get through this talk. And what, what I want to do in this talk is offer an account of where the U.S. and the world economy is today, where it's going, and Excuse me, and offer some, not predictions for your stock market portfolio, but maybe for what's, what's really coming next. To do this, I want to look at the current period from three temporal perspectives, focusing in sort of ever more closely on the present. First, from a long-run perspective, then medium-run, and finally, short-run. The long-run perspective encompasses here the whole of the post-war epoch from the end of the 1940s into the present, and, es and especially for present purposes, the long period of economic downturn for most of the capitalist world, which, became, which began in 1973. The medium-run perspective takes as its point of departure the early 1980s, the point at which the world economy began to shift toward neoliberalism, that is, free markets, um, and at the same time, the U.S. economy initiated what turned out to be a very major but ultimately abortive economic recovery between 1985 and 1995. So a background and then focus in on this period where the U.S. economy be begins to recover but runs into a wall of stagnation for the world economy as a whole. Finally, Short-run perspective. I mean, no economist would call this short-run, but for me, I'm a historian. Ten years from 1995 to the present, which I see as a period of ongoing bubble economy, featuring first the stock market uh, run-up of the second half of the 1990s, and then the housing run-up of the last five years or so, which, in my view, were providing the main dynamic of growth in <clears throat> uh, this 10-year uh, period. So... That's what I'm going to do, and I'm going to start out with this long run. 
So to begin with, it's pretty well understood that the post-war economy naturally divides itself into two parts. By the way, I hope everyone has these handouts. Um, <clears throat> a long boom, a historic boom, running from the uh, end of the 1940s to 1973, and then a long downturn, a long period of slow growth from 1973 to the present. For at least the last decade, we've been treated to never-ending proclamations, the end of stagnation, and the onset of new dynamism, new boom. But the facts of the matter are different. Not only has the long downturn persisted <clears throat> right into the present, but for the advanced capitalist economies, there has been more or less continuous worsening of performance in terms of virtually all the standard economic indicators, business cycle by business cycle. In fact, during the last five years, for the new business cycle that began in February 2001, the performance of the U.S. economy and the advanced uh, capitalist countries more generally has been the worst for any five-year period since 1950. So maybe if you just uh, – you, you're not going to have time to really look at this. Thank goodness you'll um, find out all my mistakes. But basically, if this uh, table is sort of the sort of starting point of background. And if you just read from left to right in almost any column – I mean any uh, – uh, point across the page, you'll see a downward uh, decline in rates. In rates, and uh, especially 2000-2005 in boldface, the worst um, period so far in the post-war era. This is not something that I think is kind of the, you know, sort of point of departure for the news uh, or the financial pages. What accounts for this pattern of economic performance? To me, the key is the pattern of profitability the rate of profit. And if you look uh, at the line graphs called uh, 15604 and 15.1, uh, these are the next three figures that, that follow um, declining economic dynamism. It's fairly evident that the, for the period from up to the later 1960s, you have persistently high profitability corresponding to the boom. After that, much lower profitability and above all, no recovery of the profit rate right through the end of the millennium. So that you, you can sort of gaze at that um, if you can as, as I go forward. So it would be my general proposition, very simple one, that persistent high rates of profit accounted for the long boom and persistently low rates of profit um, accounted for the long downturn extending into the present. And the argument for this is pretty straightforward. The rate of profit is a rough and ready <clears throat> determinant of the surpluses that firms have at their disposal uh, to invest and to employ new people. <clears throat> In addition, the realized rate of profit, that is, the profits that, that uh, firms already have made, uh, is the best indicator that firms actually have, since nobody knows really what's going to happen in the future. Um, <clears throat> for uh, what lies ahead. Uh, uh, that is the best indicator they have of prospective profits. And so when profitability is high, and surpluses are high, the outlook is good, you get high growth of the capital stock or plant and equipment, high growth of unemployment, and when it's low, you get low growth of investment and low growth of, of employment. So it's fairly straightforward 
relationship, and people uh, might want to talk about that and questions. Um, that's sort of where I start. Now, applying this to the post-war period as a whole, between 1948 and the late 60s, profitability remains high, and I believe made for the long boom. Excellent growth across the board. But from 1975, I'm sorry, from 65 to 73, profitability falls and doesn't recover. The result was that the growth of plant and equipment, of employment fell. Because the growth of plant and equipment fell, workers have less, uh, uh, over time, less growth uh, per worker over time to work with, and so productivity uh, falls. Uh, because uh, productivity and employment are falling, so do real wages. So what you basically see is, again, what's portrayed in that opening table, declining economic dynamism. Now, you can look at this, and very important to do so, from an opposite, so to speak, from uh, the same thing. You can look at this progression from the standpoint of demand. So because um, the, great, the rate of profit fell, the growth of, growth of domestic, I'm sorry, investment demand fell, which means that the demand coming from companies for new plant and equipment declines. I mean, it, 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 the rate of growth of it declines. Because of the rate of profit fell, employment and wage growth fell, with the consequence that workers could buy less, and so consumer demand fell. Because governments sought to help businesses improve the conditions for profitability, they reduced the growth of government spending, uh, especially social expenditures, and so the growth of government demand fell. So because the growth of investment demand and consumer demand, government demand, all fell and continued to do so, we got the economic stagnation and, indeed, worsening economic stagnation. And, um, you know, again, it's a little overwhelming in a short period of time, but you can maybe, if you, you know, if you can or want to, you can glance through it in the page and, and tables 15.1 through 15.6, which follow in order there, basically show that progression from profit, uh, profits to uh, investment to productivity and, and, and so forth. So um, in sum, the bottom line is that a fall and failure to recover of profitability has made for decline and stagnation of the growth of aggregate demand, and this has made for the extension of the long downturn right till now. And as you can see, the, the, if you, again, the problem persists right into the 21st century and the last five years. And the business cycle that began in February 2001 has been the worst of all. So that's sort of the bottom line, the starting point. And um, so the question that now logically imposes itself, well, if the decline and failure of recovery of the rate of profit is behind uh, this long period of slowed growth, the fundamental question is, well, what was responsible for the trajectory of the profit rate? And this is, of course, a huge theoretical and historical question, and um, I'll have to confine myself to a few schematic indicators. It, you know, it, this itself would take a very long time to do, and so we'll have to just sort of start at it, and people may want to raise questions about it. In, in our discussion that follows. So, so the basic idea, at least, at least I, as I see it, is that the great post-war expansion in, in the advanced capitalist countries should be understood as a process of uneven development. Uneven development. 
driven by an interaction, an interaction between an earlier developing, socially and technologically advanced and dominant or hegemonic block of capital, which was, of course, focused on the United States, and a later developing, socio-technologically backward and dominated block of capital in Western Europe and Japan. Now, the later, this is sort of about the advantages of coming late, but it's also, it's more importantly, the way in which these two blocks fit together and dictate at first a pattern of dynamism and then a pattern of slowdown. So at first, the later developing blocks derive their dynamism from their highly organized capitalisms, their, the statist interventions, the interventions of their states, their cheap factors of production, especially labor, and their ability to combine that cheap labor with the technology, advanced technology that they borrow from the United States. And this allows them to grow with historically unprecedented rapidity, especially by orienting to manufacturing exports. So the, these later developers have state intervention, they have, um, they have catch up, and they orient to the world market through exports. On the other hand, the U.S., the earlier developer, the dominant uh, power at first, derived its dynamism from its technological productive leadership. And in particular, it wields this by way of huge growth of foreign direct investment uh, by its multinational corporations and the overseas expansion in relationship to those multinationals of bankers, financiers, as well as the strength of the, its manufacturers in the home market. In other words, the U.S. expansion of the 50s and 60s entailed the first phase of the process that we know as globalization and has really continued and sort of expanded right to this date. Now, in any case, at first, this interaction between the earlier block and the later block was highly symbiotic, mutually supportive, and this gave rise to this really unprecedented economic uh, boom. Japan and Germany and West Europe uh, more generally expanded rapidly, especially by taking huge chunks of the world manufacturing market that the U.S. had, U.K. had, and lost. But that this was not so much a problem because U.S. companies also did quite well as American multinationals and banks invaded Europe while domestically-oriented manufacturers were able to prosper by not defending all their places in the world market, but by defending their place in the American market, which they totally dominated. So these two developments managed to mesh, and the result is tremendous dynamism. However, after a point, what had first been symbiosis dissolves into conflict, basically a heightening struggle for shares of the world market. They're all, bit by bit, as these later developers come online, they're producing the same thing as the earlier developer, and this becomes the problem. So from the mid-60s, what we see as a marked intensification of international competition, which led to the rise of overcapacity in international manufacturing as a whole. So as I say, the, the problem was that instead of being complementary to the, uh, what the earlier developing American and British economies were producing, what these later developers produced was the same thing at lower price, 
and so you get intensified competition and overcapacity. As a consequence of that overcapacity, firms across the system found that they could no longer mark up prices over costs sufficiently to sustain their profits, and profit rates fell all across the capitalist world from 1965 to 1973. Um, again, if you, if you look at those first uh, um, figures, you'll see that the, you know, this high uh, f uh, profits for a while, profit rates for a while, and then a shift, and then down 65 to 73, and it stays down. Now, there are various sorts of evidence uh, for this proposition, and I could bore you with uh, a whole lot of it. But the basic one, the basic, I think, decisive piece of evidence, which strikes me as quite interesting and, um, in, a, in, a, in a way, to me, very illuminating, is that the fall in the rate of profit is confined to the manufacturing sector. Why that's significant from my standpoint is because that is indicative of the intensifying competition on the world, on the world market. The manufacturing is exposed to the world market, and um, that's why, and this is where competition intensified, and that's why profitability fell there across the board. On the other hand, if you look outside manufacturing, the non-manufacturing sector, there's barely any change. And so this is significant because what characterizes the non-manufacturing sector is it's not exposed to the world market. Most of, the, most of its output or its, the goods and services are for, um, the, for the home market, and there's no competition in things like construction or retail trade, what have you. So even though costs rise much more rapidly outside manufacturing, profitability falls much less because firms within manufacturing cannot mark up their prices because there's too much competition. Firms outside are able to raise their prices in line with costs. So you have that disparity. And um, that's indicated uh, if you could find, um, I think all this stuff is in order. It's not very easy to get to. I prefer this to the um, more technologically advanced method because I have never been able to master that more technologically. But there is, there is one advantage, which is that you can continue to have these open all the time. So if you look at figure 8.1, um, this is the non-manufacturing, and nothing much changes. Here's where all the action is. Uh, in manufacturing, and it is throughout the post-war epoch right to the present. So that's where we have to look. Okay, so there you have the change. There you have the shift from boom to downturn. But if the initial fall in the rate of profit resulted from the onset of overcapacity in the world manufacturing sector, in the advanced capitalist economies, this poses a giant problem. There's still a profitability problem today. How come, how is it possible that there could have been a sustained reduction in profitability for so long? Why was there no adjustment? Now, this problem of the persistence of reduced profitability imposes itself with special force because from the time of the fall of the rate of profit between 1965 and 73, gosh, I mean, that's almost as long ago as I, let, I met Steve. And I started thinking about this problem in the 70s, and I thought for sure that, you know, we, you know, that we left this at the time. Yeah, there's a fall in the rate of profit. But 
Nobody thought it was going to last for this long, and how could that happen? Uh, and um, this problem became especially intense as we lived through the next period, and we know that firms and governments from that time have devoted themselves with ever-increasing determination and self-consciousness to implementing measures precisely to bring the rate of profit back up by attempting to reduce costs and transform the way we do business or why firms do business. So they unleashed an ever-broader assault on the working class by reducing the growth and sometimes the absolute levels of wages and social services. They sought to liberalize or neoliberalize the economy by deregulating labor and commodity markets, privatizing enterprises, and freeing up formerly repressed financial sector, meaning the regulated financial sector. They shifted capital out of high-cost, low-profit manufacturing lines, especially into financial services. They forced open markets for commodities, foreign direct investment, financial services, and short-term capital through the less developed countries. Huge pressure, as we know, on the third world from the core in this period, especially since the 80s. They stepped up foreign direct investment for the purpose of locating manufacturing in selected regions of what had been the third world in order to combine low-cost but increasingly skilled and well-educated labor with the best possible technique, creating in the process what's come to be known as complex complex networks of production or production chains. People probably have heard about networks and production chains. They turn to speculation in ever more sophisticated forms, and they sought profits throughout the global south by means of the rapid inflow and outflow of hot money to newly freed up markets and financial assets. Now, in fact, all of these interrelated measures, which we now, you know, uh, kind of categorize under neoliberal globalization. Everyone knows about globalization. But what I want to say is that globalization, neoliberal globalization, constituted nothing more or less than an ever more systematic, indeed frenzied attempt to cope with the pervasive and persistent problem of reduced profitability. But the problem, the problem or the fact remains that although these um, um, methods were pursued ever more vigorously during the 80s and 90s. We see them, that's what we read in the newspapers. Taken together, they failed to prevent the economy's performance from worsening over time, and the bottom line failed to restore the rate of profit. As a consequence, as of 2000, the long downturn remained very far from being overcome. So why then did the rate of profit not just fall, but fail to recover over this long period? In particular, why didn't we see the process that we would normally expect uh, when there's overcapacity in lines of production? First, shifting uh, of capital and labor out of low profit into high profit lines. And second, the shaking out of low, high cost and low profit means of production. Why didn't that happen? That's what any economist would think. That's a very commonsensical uh, expectation. And, and so we need to ask why. To me, there are three main processes at work that are kind of a little bit counterintuitive. First, contrary to expectations, contrary to standard economics, 
The great capitalist corporations of the advanced capitalist world did everything they could to remain in the industries that they already occupied. Only very tardily and with the greatest reluctance did they respond to their profitability problems by withdrawing plant and equipment from oversubscribed lines. Instead, they defended their position on the world market as long as possible by trying to improve their competitiveness by cutting costs by means of expanding investment as much as possible, even in the face of reduced rates of return. Why did they do this? How come they did this? The reason was they had, and and this seemed to them preferable, they had built up all of these what you want to call proprietary assets, assets that only applied to their firm and their industry, um, like uh, connections with suppliers, methods of marketing and customers, but above all, technological capacity. And they had these um, assets, intangible assets, that they could use in their line, but they couldn't transfer to another line. So it seemed to them, even though they were facing reduced profitability, that it's better to use what they have, what they're good at, and try to especially use their ability to technologically advance to compete rather than switch lines. So they decided to fight rather than switch, and obviously that meant a continuation uh, in their lines of production. Second, simultaneously, one after another region of East Asia, from Northeast Asia, Nick's to the Southeast Asian, a little tiger's to the Chinese behemoth, extended ever further that same process of uneven development that had set off the long downturn in the first place. Like the Europeans and, uh, and the Japanese before them, they did so by, explicit, by exploiting the potential advantages of coming late. They could, that is, combine low-wage labor with techniques that they already existed that they could borrow from the advanced capitalist countries. Then they proceeded very rapidly up the technological ladder, especially by means of ever-deepening regional integration made possible by a lot of export expansion and, and, and direct investment. So what I mean is the Asian area became more and more integrated and sent its products out uh, to America especially. On that basis, they rained down ever greater torrents of increasingly sophisticated manufacturing exports already on already oversupplied markets, increasing still further the stress on world manufacturing uh, profit rates. So if you look at uh, the tables and look at the third to the last one, you can see the change uh, in shares in the world market. And you can look at East Asia plus China and see how it come, this region comes to prevail in the world manufacturing market. Quite spectacular. Okay, in sum, what we witnessed in the face of initial overcapacity was insufficient exit of, of high-cost, low-profit means of production in the core and the entry of low-cost, um, uh, high-profit means of production in the periphery. So too much, not enough exit from the core, too much entry from the periphery, but of course, um, what this should have done was bring even worse uh, overcapacity, and in fact, that's what it did do. Indeed, in the 70s especially, you continue to get falling profit rates. Yet if overcapacity persisted and even got worse, 
Why didn't the world economy then experience more serious recessions, shakeout of high-cost, low-profit means of production, and that way finally achieve a recovery of profitability? So the, the, it seems as if the things that extended the profitability problem should have ended up correcting it by exacerbating the original problem. So the answer to why that didn't happen is the third crucial point in, in understanding this, and that is that the governments of the advanced capitalist world led to an ever-increasing extent by the United States made sure to, that titanic volumes of credit were made available through ever more varied and baroque channels, direct and indirect, both public and private, to firms and households, to soak up that surplus of supply over demand, which was uh, the manifestation of overcapacity. Basically, what we saw was the historically unprecedented and increasing growth of borrowing, which allowed the world economy to get the demand to counteract the problem of overcapacity. And what happened really is that, for political reasons, the governments of the advanced countries, and above all, the United States, would not, and understandably would not, allow the recessions that in the past, historically, had occurred to clear out the system and create the basis for a, a new upturn. So what you have was, the, in the end, the predicament that was facing the world economy as it entered the new, as it new, the new millennium. On the one hand, the growth of borrowing at levels that continue to break all records, and mostly in this current period, even more than ever, um, that borrowing kept up demand, and in that way prevented profitability from falling even further. And it kept the economy growing, preventing it from collapsing. So in particular, you have spectacular bursts of borrowing um, uh, in the wake of the serious recessions of 74, 5, 79, 82, the early 90s and, and 2000. So that's on the one hand, stabilizing. The, the growth of debt stabilizes the system. But on the other hand, precisely because demand was kept up by debt, the shakeout of high-cost, low-profit means of production was slowed down and limited. So the overcapacity was not very much addressed. As a consequence, overcapacity was sustained and the rate of profit failed to recover. Because the rate of profit failed to recover, investment growth, employment growth, wage growth continued to decelerate with the result that the economy was ever less dynamic. Growth of aggregate demand, again, is the problem. Insufficient. So between 1973 and the present, we didn't get a system-shaking crisis of the sort that uh, we had in the 1930s or the kind of serious recessions that we got all through the second half of the 19th century to restore the economy to dynamism. Uh, uh, what we got instead was slow growth and stagnation. So in a sense, what the economy did was sacrifice dynamism and instability for stability and stagnation. And that's essentially what has accounted for this very long period of long downturn. I mean, it's, I have to say, I mean, it's an amazing, these numbers to me, even when I, you know, just finished a book and I was bringing these numbers together, and the most recent number, I just couldn't, I, I was very stunned and it, it helped me write a conclusion, but 
I, it's, it's quite amazing, and that's the way I think it should be accounted for. But please think about it, because it is paradoxical, and it's a place that maybe there are better explanations. So, okay, that's the long-run picture, the big picture, so to speak, from long boom to long downturn. What about the medium run? And from a medium run perspective, and, you know, so what I'm, what I'm, I'm you know, sort of uh, thinking, keep the long-term perspective of stagnation, slow-growing pie in the back of your mind or the front of your mind because this medium run stuff is going on, overlaying it, so to speak. There are two, here there are two key developments um, which I, I think need to be brought out and both originated in the early 1980s. The first, you know, is this huge shift to liberalization, um, to the deepening of marketization, the, the attempt at least by the state to, um, in many respects, back off and let the economy run in terms of uh, free market. And the, what you have is that shift accompanied by, and I'll try to explain the relationship, uh, a worsening of the problem of aggregate demand for the system as a whole. So that's one development. Against that background of marketization and declining demand, there was a very major, and it was very spectacular while it was happening, but ultimately abortive recovery of the American economy led by its manufacturing sector. So let's look at these two developments one at a time. First, liberalization. It, as people probably know here, the initial response to falling profit rate and problems of the economy uh, on a world scale in the late 60s and early 70s was Keynesianism, Keynesian budget deficits and easy credit to subsidize aggregate demand. Problem was that by the end of the 1970s, Keynesianism had failed. And the reason for, for this, from the standpoint that I'm arguing, is quite clear. The deficits certainly kept up growth through providing more demand. However, they added, um, the, their added demand allowed high-cost, low-profit firms to continue in business rather than going bankrupt. And this sustained overcapacity and prevented the recovery of the profit rate. So during the 70s, profitability doesn't collapse, but it doesn't recover either. And, and, and indeed, it goes down somewhat. And for that reason, so against the background of low and falling profitability, when you get these, the stimulus to demand, you don't get much response. You get less, less and less what they call bang for the buck. Instead of getting a response in terms of supply and investment, you get... Um, Runaway inflation, rising government deficits, rising trade deficits. So uh, what by the end of the 70s, there's a real crisis. The dollar is falling, threatening the role of the dollar as key currency. And amazingly, um, there's an attempt to what they call stabilize, uh, uh, a stabilization plan, so to speak, which we associate with the third world, was imposed on the United States. The so-called or very famous Volcker shock of 1979 uh, to 81 unleashed by Federal Reserve Chairman Volcker was designed to set the economy on a new path by imposing unprecedentedly high interest rates, unprecedented austerity. And the, and the idea was, first of all, you increase unemployment, so break the back of inflation, and undercut workers' organization so as to reduce wage growth. But it was not just that. It was also designed quite consciously 
to wipe out that huge ledge of overcapacity in manufacturing that had continued to build up in the 70s, especially as Keynesian debt had built up. And this was supposed to pave the way for a recovery of manufacturing profitability, a shift into financial services, indeed make for a financial expansion by driving up interest rates um, uh, and uh, driving up the dollar to encourage uh, money from overseas to come into, into the U.S. So you can see, in a sense, what I'm saying is that the Volcker shock follows from the analysis that I'm trying to give. They, they saw that there's overcapacity. They saw that debt had kept it, uh, kept it going, and they wanted to contract debt and, and attack that overcapacity, and that's what they did. But the problem was that the Volcker shock gave rise to the worst recession of the post-war period. In 1982, unemployment reached almost 12%, and this precipitated, you remember, the international debt crisis and fears of depression, uh, depression. Um, unemployment reached, yeah. Um, <clears throat> the Reagan administration was unable, and uh, I mean unwilling politically, to accept further deepening recession and the possibility of a crash. So for political reasons, <clears throat> uh, there was some easing up on interest rates, and especially, ironically, because remember Reagan was a Republican, supposedly a conservative, um, he comes in and you get the biggest uh, a dose of Keynesianism in world history. Huge amount of military spending, huge tax cuts for the rich, biggest deficits ever. So the result was what they had tried to do was have that you know, flushing out of the system through the Volcker shock, but they couldn't politically sustain it. And so uh, what you have is only a partial break with the result that the economy continues to limp along through the 19th 80s. <clears throat> what made things more difficult in this period was that the East Asian economies were coming online, huge entry into the world market, exacerbating the problem of overcapacity. So there's a move toward marketization, but they can't quite do it. The real discontinuity comes in the early um, 1990s under that um, a famous conservative, uh, Bill Clinton. Uh, at that point, um, uh, uh, throughout the advanced capitalist countries and the United States, we get two things. Not just a turn to tight credit, but a turn to budget balancing. And so they're, now they're finally going to take, they're going to you know, take their own medicine accept the liberal idea of a free market, and let the economy go on its own. So Bill, when Bill Clinton took office in 1993, um, uh, they, um, they in implemented a long-term project to balance the budget, which succeeded over the course of the 90s. And in Europe, in preparation for Maastricht or monetary unity, they did the same thing. The outcome, though, of the tight credit and budget balancing was that the world economy was left for the first time to pretty much regulate itself on the basis of the free market. So the, this is really where the shift comes. Um, and so this is essentially the first part of this development. I'm talking about this shift which only begins under Clinton and in Europe at, the, at this point. However, the results are just the opposite of what the advocates of the free market had hoped. 
since profit rates still remained low, especially in manufacturing, um, <clears throat> firms responded to declining government stimulus by cutting costs more viciously. That's the natural thing they had to do. They weren't getting demand to keep their profits up. They needed to cut costs <clears throat> um, even more viciously than before, especially by laying off workers and reducing capacity very rapidly. As a result, between 1991 and 1995, <clears throat> Europe and Japan suffered the worst recessions of the post-war period up to that time, driven by huge contractions in the manufacturing sector, driven by crises of manufacturing profitability. In the meanwhile, people may remember, there are some of these, some people who I can see would remember um, in this room, uh, at the start of the 90s in the U.S., we saw that we experienced the famous jobless recovery. And this was exacerbated, again, by the further expansion, Korea, Taiwan, and the Southeast Asian economies. So what the free market did was bring about a deepening of stagnation into the middle 1990s. Um, in short, the world economic pie was growing even slower. So that's the first of the short-run developments, 1980-1995. Freeing up the market, but the freed-up market in the face of low profitability leads to further slowdown because you have that. Now you took out the, the demand that had kept the economy going, and since profits aren't up, firms don't naturally speed up investment and employment to make up the deficit or make up the difference. That's development number one. Now, the second one is the U.S. recovery. And the U.S. recovery, the nature of this U.S. recovery, is not only important for its own sake, but indicates what's happening in the world economy as a whole. So against this background of deepening global stagnation, the U.S. economy staged a major but paradoxical recovery. It began with the Volcker shock, high interest rates, a high dollar, did bring some shakeout in manufacturing and created the beginning of a, of a productivity revival. Um, the recovery itself was driven by lower interest rates, wages that were flat, imagine, for, for decade, 85 to 95, no growth in manufacturing compensation whatsoever. And most important, you have an agreement between the U.S., Japan, Germany, essentially, uh, at Plaza Accord of 1985, which was to get the U.S. economy's manufacturing sector grow, going by bringing down the value of the dollar. So there was a huge increase in this period of the, manufact of the manufacturing profit weight rate, um, <clears throat> which brought by itself a big recovery of the profit rate as a whole. And uh, for the first time then, since... Uh, 1973, you begin to have a recovery. And this is in, let's see, the you can see this table. I'm sorry. I, I must have, it's, let's see. I'd like to find, I think it's, uh, it's figure 15.3. Yeah. So figure 15.3. And what – oh, no, that's not it. Sorry. It's the one before. It's called U.S. Profit Rate Indexes. And what, what you see there is this big recovery of the manufacturing profit rate, which brings about a recovery of the aggregate profit rate, uh, the profit rate of the economy as a whole. <clears throat> so by the 
early 1990s, 93, 94, even though you don't have a complete recovery of profitability, you're beginning to get a new boom. Investment is starting to grow. In, um, in, uh, the GDP is starting to grow. Productivity is starting to grow. And it looks like the U.S. was um, going to uh, finally bail out uh, the uh, world economy. But <clears throat> in view of the profound weakness of the world economy, and sort of this is sort of the opposite point I'm trying to make, not just that the U.S. Re was recovering, but it couldn't recover because of the background against which it was improving its profitability and how it had proved its profitability. So there's this pie is stagnating, and so the result is we have a kind of hydraulic or zero-sum dynamic. The U.S. economy or the economies that have cheapening costs, particularly by virtue of cheap money, uh, uh, low uh, currency, are taking over the world market. Those who, who are the opposite side, who have a high currency, are hit by declining competitiveness and falling profitability. So one economy or set of economies improves, the other one goes down. And that's manifested, that manifests this underlying problem of demand, this underlying problem of uh, overcapacity that hasn't been solved. And that, in figure 15.3, you can see that. So if you look at the line for the United States from the middle 80s to the middle 90s, you can see big recovery of profitability. But if you look at the lines for Japan and, and Germany, you see um, the opposite. They go down. So you have push me, pull you, sort of. And um, so the, by 1995, the Japanese yen has risen uh, like three times or four times what it had been in 73, and the economy's freezing up. So the G3 has to take action again to bail out Japan and Germany, just as in the Plaza Accord, they had bailed out the U.S. So you have the opposite phenomenon. Mid-80s, U.S. in trouble, currency uh, adjustment through the Plaza Accord, 1995, the reverse Plaza Accord. And this did put a stop to the threat that the Japanese and um, German economy were going to go into collapse. However, <clears throat> by raising the value of the dollar, the so-called reverse Plaza Accord destroyed the foundations of the U.S. recovery by doing the opposite, undermining U.S. competitiveness and profitability. So between 1995 and 2000, the U.S. manufacturing profit rate is going down again, uh, a precipitous decline. So you look at that same figure, 15.3, after 95, you have, um, you have a decline in the U.S., a bit of recovery in Japan and Germany, so a reverse of 85.95. Again, I'm belaboring the point, but I think it's very important. A background of aggregate slowdown, a background of aggregate reduced profitability, and therefore these attempts by cutting wages, by cutting the currency, are not going to solve the problem. So partial U.S. recovery aborted in 1995. And this brings me to the concluding section of this discussion, which is on the short run, on basically on the period 
between 95 and 2000. The bottom line was that by 1995, the world economy was at an impasse. The turn to reliance on the free market, by which I mean ceasing to recur to Keynesian budget deficits to push up aggregate demand, had left the advanced capitalist economies in their worst recession of the post-war era between 91 and 95. At the same time, the U.S. recovery up to that point, based on the low dollar and low wages, had exacerbated the problems of Western Europe and Japan. The rapid rise of East Asia, with its massive manufacturing exports, had made things even worse. Now, the return to the reverse plaza accord did stop the bleeding for Japan and Western Europe, but itself brought to the fore the ongoing fundamental underlying problem of aggregate demand. For the whole post-war period then, the U.S. market had provided the locomotive of the world economy. And this was even more so during the long downturn when the rest of the world market had turned to austerity at home, cutting state spending, reducing wages, so forth, and become ever more export dependent. In other words, over time, there was even greater dependence than before on the U.S. economy in the 80s and 90s. But as we've just seen, from 1995, the U.S. was in a very poor position to pull the economy along. The reverse Plaza Accord had deprived the U.S. of its major motor, the manufacturing recovery, so the private economy was beginning to lose steam. At the same time, starting with Clinton, the U.S. and Europe had resolved not to rely on Keynesian deficits and was in the process of balancing the budget. So what that meant was that the usual remedy for slowdown was not available, that there was no Keynesianism of the normal sort to provide the additional demand. And so the $64 question was, where was the demand to come from now to drive the U.S. and turn the world economy around? And this is where Alan Greenspan comes in. I have to have at least one human in this talk. And thank goodness he's not going to come out well. So anyway, <laughs> Alan Greenspan comes in with a novel plan to stimulate the stock market to stimulate the U.S. economy. Now, already by 1995-96, equity prices had begun to rise as a result precisely of that reverse plaza accord. Money was pouring in to the U.S. Treasury bonds um, from Japan to push the dollar up, but this also pushed interest rates down, long-term interest rates down, and those low interest rates started to get the stock market going up. At the same time, the dollar was going up, and so the stocks were going up uh, in, in that way, too. Equity prices were going up very fast. Um, so people will remember that by the end of 1996, Alan Greenspan made his famous warning about irrational exuberance in the stock market. People remember that famous phrase. And, of course, there was irrational exuberance because, remember, profitability in the real economy, which had been recovering, um, <laughs> was now, after the reverse plaza court, going down. So profitability is going down, but the stock market's going up. But in fact, the stock market, after Greenspan's warning, continued to rise, and Greenspan did absolutely nothing about it, a fact not lost on investors. As the economic expansion continued, he not only failed to raise interest rates in the normal way, but he in fact lowered them 
at every point at which there seemed to be the slightest worry that the stock market would tank. For example, in late summer 1997, when the Asian crisis began, or in late 19, uh, in the fall of 1998, when the world economy was actually beginning to freeze up. As a result, we saw a record run-up in the stock market in defiance of pro uh, the profit rate. And uh, I, I forgot to include this graph, and I know you can't see it, but I'll pretend you can. And what it, what it shows is that the profits and uh, the stock market go up together right up to 1995. But then the stock market takes off and profits start going down. That's what it says, I, believe me. <laughs> Don't look too closely, but, you know, believe me. Okay. Uh, <coughs> so Greenspan knew what he was doing. As company stock market valuations rose, they were worth more. Therefore, they possessed, in effect, more collateral. And this enabled them to borrow money more easily. At the same time, especially high-tech companies, which experienced the biggest stock increases, were able to issue their overvalued shares to raise massive funds. So they, you know, they had IPOs and more and more stocks went on the market and they got richer. And this gave the companies across the board an enormous increase in the capacity to invest and employ which was extremely paradoxical, of course, for this was the very time that the profit rate was going down. But the fact was that firms were flush with cash despite their declining profitability because of their high stock prices. And this made it possible for a huge investment boom between 1995 and 2000, a huge expansion of employment in the same period. In fact, or in other words, the famous new economy boom. People will remember that. Seems like ancient history now. But <clears throat> that was the new economy boom, and that was its basis. What was going on? Greenspan realized that the economy, on its own, was short of demand. He couldn't, he couldn't um, get demand from private sector investment and employment. He couldn't get it from normal Keynesianism because they had resolved to balance the budget. So what he did was exploit what's called the wealth effect of rising asset prices to usher in a new form of stimulus, which I would call stock market Keynesianism or asset price Keynesianism. Instead of the government borrowing to stimulate demand, firms and, and uh, individuals, by courtesy of the Federal Reserve, were allowed to get wealthy on the stock market. And their private borrowing and their expenditures stimulated demand and the economy and got it you know, going in quite a dynamic way in the late 1990s. But self-evidently, the problem was that the new boom was without foundations. The growth of borrowing drove up stock prices, but in defiance of profits. And the price-equity ratio, the, essentially the ratio between prices and, and stock prices and profits, reached an all-time high. Meanwhile, the growth of borrowing drove up output in the face of already existing overcapacity, so it drove profit rates down further. And it was almost only a matter of time before there'd be a, a, a depression, a recession. In 2000, uh, in fact, the new economy boom came to an abrupt end. Overcapacity all across manufacturing brought terrible profit reports in 2000, 2001. Stock crash, 
which meant the reverse of the wealth effect. It meant companies couldn't raise money easily to employ or invest on the stock market, and we got the recession of 2000 and 2001. Symptomatically, this recession was almost totally, and we can understand why, focused on the manufacturing sector. The profit rate fall was entirely confined to manufacturing. Um, it fell by 20 percent um, between 2000 and uh, I'm sorry, between 1997 and 2001. Uh, I'm sorry, overall and and. All of this was accounted for by a 40% fall in manufacturing. Most spectacular was what was happening in the so-called new economy. There was a study done of what happened to income and profits for the NASDAQ, you know, all the firms on NASDAQ, which is the index which includes all the the high-tech stocks. What what happened to them in 2001-2002? Their losses in that one-and-a-half-year period, equaled their total profits between 1995 and 2000. As one uh, economist joked, uh, it was as if the new economy had never happened. Meanwhile, all of the loss in jobs occurred in manufacturing, and it was gigantic. Three million jobs were lost over the next four years. As to investment, There was zero growth in the capital stock in manufacturing between 2000 and 2004. So, again, almost all the investment drop was from manufacturing. And, of course, there was a big decline of exports as the American uh, uh, recession went to Europe. So we have a huge shock to the system. Fastest decline in GDP and investment in the post-war period between the middle of 2000 um, and the middle of 2001. But Greenspan, and here's the coming to a conclusion, um, and sort of the, the, the short-run theme, Greenspan comes to the rescue again with his new form of stimulus asset price Keynesianism. But instead of using the stock market, which is, of course, had collapsed by this time, he turns to housing. Housing prices were already rising because rich people were transferring their money from stock market to the housing market. So Greenspan lowers interest rates and kept them below zero in real terms for three years. Housing prices take off and increase by 50% between 2001 and 2005. No one here fails to know this part of the story. Everyone here I know has paid attention to this development. And what it did was allow people to borrow against their increasing equity in their houses and, in fact, to cash out um, their increased uh, equity, and because of the lower interest rates, even if they had less equity and had more higher loans, their payments stayed the same. So nine equity cash-outs rose to like 9% of GDP in these recent years. Borrowing on that basis of these cash-outs smashed all records, reaching 11% of GDP, which the highest it had ever been was about uh, 7% in the 80s. And so the upturn is based entirely, really entirely, on this consumption and residential um, investment. These two things count for the entirety of GDP growth in this period. Housing is really driving consumption, 
um, housing is accounting for whatever investment there is in the, in the economy. And in fact, the um, economy does start growing. But again, for this period, which is the slowest growing period in the post-war era, 30% of that growth is directly accounted for by the housing sector. Okay. So again, be, as between 1995 and 2000, rising asset prices come to the rescue of the economy, and we've had an expansion, although a slow one, for the last five years. The question is, what will be the outcome? What can we expect? Greenspan's idea was to rely on the wealth effect of rising housing prices to provide the demand to keep the economy turning over as it worked off that manufacturing overcapacity. So um, <clears throat> the firms would go bankrupt, they'd get rid of uh, plant and equipment, they'd get rid of workers, and, but that wouldn't cause any serious disruption of the economy because consumers would be taking up the slack with their, cons uh, their demand made possible by their uh, housing price increases and their borrowing. Sooner or later, thought Greenspan, the private business sector would come in and take over from the consumer and make more jobs and investment. However, despite what really has been the biggest stimulus in American history, not just these low interest rates, but as people know, a shift from a budget surplus in 2000 to a significant budget deficit in, uh, 2000, you know, over the course of the Bush period, there's been very little response, a lot of stimulus, little response. What about jobs? Usually at this point in the recovery where we are, jobs have grown by 11% on average for the post-war period. In this period, they've only grown by 3.5%, a deficit of 11 million jobs. So normally there'd be 11 million jobs more created in this upturn than has been. As to compensation, meaning the number of jobs times wages, aggregate compensation. That usually by this point is up 18%. In this upturn, 3%. So you can see the shortfall. As to investment, non-residential investment, usually it's up about 6%. Up to now, it's been a little over 3%. And we've barely reached the level it was at at 2000. So the upshot is the slowest GDP growth for any five-year period and housing accounting for a, qu a quarter of it. So I'll come to try to come to conclusion now. The question is, what is actually happening in the economy right now? Um, how can we explain this pattern, big stimulus, this kind of response, <clears throat> and what can we expect? There is a possibility still, I guess, I don't think so, but there's still a possibility that Greenspan's strategy will work. Perhaps there's been, and we don't quite see it yet, a sufficient shakeout so that ultimately, sooner rather than later, we'll see a new boom and a, a, driven by employment investment. In other words, maybe by now, finally, this overcapacity has been remedied. That's the Greenspan strategy. That's the hope. And that would lead, finally, to a new sustained upturn. But what seems to me more likely is that Greenspan policy is turning out to be counterproductive and actually backfiring. So what we've had in the last five years 
is a very familiar pattern. It's the pattern that I've been emphasizing throughout the whole talk. Falling prophets, which we got in 2002, you know, the end of the uh, last century to 2001. In response, firms cut employment and wages and investment in order to respond to overcapacity, cut costs, <clears throat> and regain their profitability. But this makes for a huge hit to aggregate demand. This is a normal way a capital cycle runs. Profit problems, you attack them. There's a demand problem. There's a shakeout, and there's the basis for a new upturn. <clears throat> the recession, which began in 2000, 2001, all else equal would have been very serious. But Greenspan's asset price Keynesianism did cut this short. And that was its, quote, good side. But the other side that he was hoping for <clears throat> didn't happen. Why not? Be that, that is a eventual response of the economy and in terms of investment and employment. I think what's happened is that that same low interest rate regime and deficits spending by Bush gave such a um, subsidy to demand in other words, the housing bubble, the government deficit, that allowed firms, instead of to shake out their capital stock, shake out their employment, move to new lines, it allowed them to continue on as before. But if firms are continuing on as before precisely because they've been saved by Greenspan's policy, that means that overcapacity continues and that overcapacity stymies investment and employment. Meanwhile, um, again, if you look at the, I guess it's the last, one or the last, or the other um, page, sheet uh, on exports, um, shares of exports, you can see that in this period, look at, look at what's going on with China. And look, look, at the two, look at the two lines, China and the U.S., for a long period, you had stable share of the world market for the U.S., but between 2000 and 2005, look at that fall off. On the other hand, in that same period, look at what's going on with China. So what's, going, what's happening, in short, is this exacerbation of the problem of overcapacity by, on the one hand, firms not leaving their lines because of this um, uh, subsidy to demand through in this case, through asset price Keynesianism, and then overcapacity made worse by the Asians coming online. At the same time, the other spectacular development of this period, which is bubbles. Interest rates are low. They're not stimulating investment. They're not stimulating employment. What are they stimulating? Rich people, firms, have incredible capacity to borrow cheap and invest in housing, bonds, third world debt, what have you. And what we've had is bubble after bubble across the board. No investment in real plant and equipment because um, there's too much capacity made possible by the stimulus to demand. Um, but the biggest bubble in history in housing um, <clears throat> uh, that is driven by 
speculation, basically, as well as consumer demand, the big, huge bubbles in bonds, huge bubbles in um, third world investment. Simultaneously, instead of investing, firms are paying off their debts, paying dividends, buying their own stocks at, at uh, record levels. So basically bubbles on the one hand, a crisis of investment and employment on the other. In this context, we can see what's happening right now, what you see on the news every day. Housing bubble broke, busted, and housing prices are falling. So that stimulus to demand is being removed from the system. On the other hand, employment and investment are not coming in to take its place. People have probably watched the last few months. Um, the already bad employment situation has uh, gotten worth, worse. And in this context, it's hard to see any motivation for firms to suddenly start investing and employing. Instead, we could see profitability, um, uh, uh, people seeing a threat to their profitability, and that if they do, that would lead to a stock market fall. Or it could be that as the housing market slows down and there's no employment to take its place, consumption will simply fall and the economy just kind of peter out. But whether it's a whimper or a bang, I think the cyclical out, uh, upturn that we've seen is coming to an end, and there's going to be, I think, turbulence ahead. So I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Please. Yeah, it's uh, wonderful to have you in uh, Columbus uh, uh, speaking on two wildly different areas, early modern Europe and uh, the modern economy. And as I sat here listening to you and thinking about your paper tomorrow, I was remembering when I was an undergraduate, Michael Poston, uh, uh, the Cambridge academic I ever met, uh, did exactly the same. He gave courses on medieval European economic history and on the history of Europe's economic history of Europe since 1945. Uh, I'm even older than you, so he stopped in the 60s. And we pointed out that we have never seen in this world an economic growth which is like that of Europe between 1945 and 1965. And we never will. It's unique. Your tables all start with that unique high growth rate. If you're dealing in percentages, if you look in the middle terms, you'll never see that again uh, unless more statesmen than Bush listen to my colleague John Mueller and start having more wars, uh, which really does uh, level the playing field. I thought Bush would be um, trying to do that for him. I mean, we're doing our best. We're doing our best. You gave the example of the uh, fall in 2001 wiped out profits from 1995 to 2000. That's nothing compared to the 1920s and 30s. It's my view that we're not doing quite as badly as you say. If you take the long view, we have an extraordinary growth from 45 to 65. If you look before that, it's a lot worse than anything we've seen since, even the oil crisis of 1973. I just wonder whether perhaps um, we shouldn't give ourselves or even our marine spellers a more pat on the head from time to time. Uh, we're fine-tuning. <coughs> it hurts. It doesn't hurt nearly as much as if we've been alive for imposter who's growing up. Thank you for mentioning me in the same breath as uh, Michael Poston. That's, a, uh, that's the wrong breath, but I really appreciate what you said. Uh, 
and I uh, uh, have been inspired by uh, Pustin, even though I've been uh, critical of him. Um, amazing, amazing person, as you know, to meet, kind of wild guy. But to your questions, um, I agree in part, I disagree in part. The part I disagree with is the first part. And the, the common wisdom is that the post-war boom was special. Therefore, the, what I call the long downturn is not so problematic because the comparison is wrong. It's, it's a, the comparison is against a, you know, what, what, what your name? I'm sorry, I didn't get your name. Ah, oh, God. Hi. Oh, I'm sorry. I never, I, I've only read Jeffrey. I'm, I'm sorry that I didn't recognize you, but I recognize you now. And uh, I'm really glad to meet you in this way. But what, um, what uh, the, so what, what Jeffrey's saying is it's a false, there's a false contrast going on between this, what I call a long downturn and the boom. And they really, they, they are, the numbers are very different, he says, but only because the boom is exaggerated, has an exaggerated character. But what I would say is that's not really right. The proper, uh, where, the proper way to look at this is between, uh, look, look at uh, data that can be compared. So if you look, for example, at the American situation, the American history, you look at the boom between, the long boom between 1890 and 1913, and the boom between 1950 and 1973, um, which is here. Fortunately, you can't see it, so you have to believe what I'm going to say. Uh, and what I'm going to say is, what I'm going to say is that the America, if you compare the American boom of the 50 to 73, it's not particularly exaggerated. It's the same as the, almost exactly the same as the boom between 1890 and 1913. And that's the proper comparison because we don't even, you know, the, for the, it's almost really for the first time that, and, and after a tremendous period of disruption that uh, the Japanese and German uh, and so forth economies are coming. But if you make the right comparison, you can see that they both have, the booms are similar. And yet in contrast to that, the downturn is very sharp, both compared to the long boom of 1890 to 1913 and the long boom of 1850 to 1873. So there really is, from this standpoint, a serious long downturn. Now, the other side of what you're saying, I completely agree with. You're saying, yes, it's a downturn, but it's not like some downturns we've had, like the interwar downturn. It's really quite subdued. And I completely agree with that. And that is one of the main um, points I was trying to get across, which is that what has happened is, in effect, because of the government intervention that you're implicitly referring to and our ability to so-called fine-tune, what we've been able to do is trade off, as it were, stability. We've been able to get, I mean, we, we've traded off growth to get stability. So what we've gotten, you're right, we haven't gotten any terrible depression, but we've gotten 
stagnation. And th these are two signs of the, uh, sides of the same coin. So we've traded off um, uh, economic dynamism in order to get economic stability. If we had allowed, so to speak, economic instability, we'd have more dynamism. But this is the uh, big achievement of the last 30 years. And, and I think you're absolutely right. I mean, almost anybody would, have tr would trade what we went through to the interwar, the interwar period. Um, one the kind of interesting question is what's going to happen now? Because we went through, as you're saying, uh, a very successful use of Keynesianism th through really the, between the 70s and the early 90s. But then the world, the world powers that be decided that that really was providing too little dynamism. We were getting too much stagnation. So they, tried, they freed up the market. And they found quickly, oh, we got a problem. And they need the kind of fine-tuning you've talked about. But the way they've gone to fine-tuning is through an incredibly, uh, as it were, uh, kind of uh, speculative and wild method, which is driving up asset prices to, instead of driving up government deficits, they drive up private deficits through making asset prices go up. But what's going to happen? We, we had one stock market crash. If we have a housing crash now, what is going to really be the next mode of fine-tuning? And that's the kind of the, one of the questions I think we, that every, you know, this new Federal Reserve Chair Bernanke is trying to figure out what are we, what's going to happen. Please. One of the economic changes over the last six years that isn't picked up in these statistics is the tremendous growth in two-income families. I remember hearing Paul Volcker, I think it was Paul Volcker, say sometime in the early 1980s that the single most important fact about the American economy in the 20th century is the steady growth of, of women into the paid workforce. A lot of your statistics look at per capita income, and that, that demonstrates decline. But if you go from the mid mid-20th century to the late-20th century, what's happening in the United States is a, is a critical mass of two-income families where there once were single-income families. And so you, your statistics don't capture that unless you talk about family income. And I was just, I'm sure you deal with that in the book, but how does that fit into the broader picture? It's not just America, but it... Well, actually, look at that. Look at the first page and look at GDP per capita. And what you, what you see there is pretty much just what you said. Uh, it is exactly the point you, you made is picked up in per capita because if you think about it, per capita income used to uh, include those uh, wives who were not working, but that you know, was divided into the GDP, and so that you know, per capita would have been lower. Adding them is a huge boost to GDP, and it comes out in the per capita figures. So I agree. I, all I would say is I completely agree with you that uh, this has been an incredibly important development which has offset what would have been incredibly uh, difficult times for American working people. They are very uh, incredibly difficult times because people are working much longer hours. You have everybody in the family working which is uh, you know, a, a hardship, but in effect, you've been able to prevent 
family incomes from falling. And basically, family incomes have stagnated since the, since the 70s. They ba basically stayed the same. They went up in the late 90s, which is, which is this period of the new economy and that boom. But they've uh, come down in the last, in the last uh, few years as a result of that, uh, that uh, downturn. But I just agree with you. I mean, I don't have any disagree with you at all that the GDP, GDP figures per capita of the U.S. are pretty impressive. But beneath that is this addition of hours and addition of workers, basically a f more, more employment. Sorry. Well, this, this would be another hedge then, which um, disappears as you look to the future. If in 2006 you've got pretty much maximum capacity in terms of two-worker families, what's going to happen over the next half century? You can't have that, that kind of growth in family income unless you start sending children back to the mills or something. No, you're, you're absolutely right. I, I, I just want to make one bracketed point here. The, the, the GDP per capita numbers are vaunted by publicists for the American economy, and they, com and they compare them to Europe, and they say, look, we, we have higher GDP per capita. But uh, the point is it's, it's entirely to do with labor force participation and hours of work per year. Productivity, meaning our output per hour of, of the European labor force, has actually risen above the American labor force. I don't know if you read the you know, standard financial, financial times or Wall Street Journal, but you hear, you know, it's, it's just taken as a fact that the American economy is more, is more effective and more productive. But in fact, our output per hour in the private economy is lower in the U.S. than it is in France or, or uh, Germany or uh, Belgium or almost every Northwest European country. Advanced capitalist economies. Yeah, and, and I don't know how to put the two together. And you talk about the shrinking or small growing pie, and you know one of the lessons to take away from this is what Jeremy Siegel and others have been telling us is part of the stock market. Get out of the U.S. Get over to uh, foreign uh, the stock market. Yeah, well, that's a very good point. I think, though, I mean, the way I would respond is um, there is. If you're talking about the world economy, in general, it's probably worse than what's going on in the advanced capitalist economies, with one gigantic exception, and that's East Asia, and then within East Asia, China. I mean, this has been really spectacular growth. Um, as I understand it, the size, though, if you add up the uh, NICs, Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, and like the Southeast Asian little tigers, you know, um, and China, still that, uh, the size of that economy is still significantly too small to counteract these numbers. That's what I think. I don't have the numbers at my fingertips. I should. But I, I don't think that the size of those economies yet are anywhere near. Uh, the reason being is that even though their growth has been incredibly fast, they're starting from a very low, they're starting from a very low level. So their, whatever their rates can't counterbalance yet. The other thing about this is, 
And this is, a, you know, this is what I would propose. Um, I don't know, you know, this is something to, for more work. But I think that the positive effect of China for the world economy is way overstated because although it's unbelievably dynamic, for example, in 2005, I mean, I, I, this is staggering, there was more investment, you know, in dollar terms made in China than in the United States. I mean, that is just an unbelievable figure. But what is China investing in? They're investing in manufacturing for manufacturing for the world market. And what are they producing? They're producing everything that the world market is already producing, only cheaper. So to me, what that means is that the effect of Chinese entree into the world market, especially over the last five years, which has been unbelievable, is to actually exacerbate the problem of overcapacity and that there, there's a problem in China itself, and this is being felt everywhere. I mean, that's my own take. It's not proved. I mean, it ha there has to be more, uh, you know, a lot more looking closely at it. But so that, you know. Steve? If you were in charge of the economy, what would you do? I have no idea. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. You know, my business is to say it's impossible to solve this problem. You know? <laughs> I've been saying that since about uh, 1965 or something. I no, no, I wasn't quite old enough yet, but I, as soon as I could be, I did. Uh, yeah. It seems like the, the biggest cost that you indicated in terms of maintaining the stability has been increased public and private debt, public debt through increasing fiscal policy, private debt through housing bubble. Yeah. Yeah, but I don't think there's ever been an economy of this size that has, or, or of this uh, importance. I mean, to, you know, not to, pr probably I should have been more, tried more seriously to answer Steve, but I, I, I you know, in, in responding to Jeffrey's uh, a point uh, and, and the question he raised, I really, I think, you know, um, Jeffrey's point was very well taken about, Greenspan and about, in fact, about American policymakers more generally. There's been a method to the madness. I mean, at certain points, uh, you know, you could find fault. But even Reagan, I mean, I'm inclined to say that where you have these huge deficits financed through this despicable tax cuts for the rich and military spending, nonetheless, given the depths of the profitability problem at that point, continuation of some sort of Keynesianism was really necessary and a good idea. And that when they decided to balance the budget, this caused them problems, but Greenspan immediately, you know, immediately responded with this kind. I mean, he was happy to do so because as, as you picked up in passing, who's benefiting from these things? People have money. People only, only uh, you know, 10% of the population own 90% of the shares. 1% of the population own 50% of the shares. So the method of driving the American economy in the late 1990s was very ingenious and not accidentally benefited the very rich. But it's hard to think of what 
a better way than Greenspan did if you weren't going to resort to traditional Keynesian methods, say, build lots of schools and hospitals on de deficit spending and so forth. And similarly for the more recent period. S but so, you know, this is the, to me, the, the sort of left critique would be it's very hard to have a really strong left critique if you accept the way the system is operating, which is that profits drive the system. You have to maintain profits. If you're going to keep the system running on a capitalist basis, you have to have profitability as the bottom line. You have to have costs in relation to prices that are realistic. You have to have demand. And so these people who, who are running the economy, it's what they spend their time thinking about. And I don't think a left, the left has a, a very, has a, a better plan for stability. They have a much better plan for fairness, for uh, how this could be done. Because, uh, of course, this, this, since 1965, you could have had Keynesianism done in a way that would benefit the masses of the population rather than the way we've had it. Or even starting with Kennedy. Remember, the, the new economy was going to respond to the stagnation of the late 50s under Eisenhower with a liberal, you know, a liberal, meth, you know, a liberal, uh, you know, stimulating response. But what Keynesian, what Kennedy did was tax cuts. He did tax cuts for the for the wealthy and for the corporations, not, um, you know, uh, increased spending for working people. So I think that, you know, the there's two ways the left responds. It seems to me. One way is to say, pretty much if you have capitalism, you, the constraints are extremely high, and what we want is a fair, a fair method of fine-tuning, Jeffrey put it. The deeper critique is the one I'm implicitly saying, which is that if you're going to run on a capitalist basis, you're going to run on a system which is, very, which is deeply crisis-prone and... Uh, prone to tremendous attacks on working people, and the only way to to solve that is to is to essentially sacrifice dynamism for stability, and um, you know to do it in the, in, the, in the in the way in the way they've done it. But it, uh, to me, given the enormous levels of wealth in the advanced capitalist countries and the absolute imminence of the ecological crisis, it's just insane to. Um, to prioritize growth at this point. And what needs to be prioritized is distribution, and that means distribution not just within the core, but to the developing, you know, developing world. Now, would you talk more about the non-manufacturing segment? Because profits do not seem to change very much in the United States over 50 years. Right. And it's, it's become a vastly bigger, and services, et cetera, become a vastly bigger part of the economy. Right, right. So Right. 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 Two, just two, two points. I agree. I, I, I think you make, you make an important point. One thing, though, is that hasn't been noticed in um, people's analyses. Although the manufacturing sector's size in terms of jobs 
and in terms of GDP has shrunken, rel- uh, shrank, shrunken, shrank, relatively to the rest of the economy, as you point out. The size, the contribution of manufacturing profits to total profits was completely disproportional to its size. In, by even as late as the late 90s, the manufacturing contributed profits, contributed half of total corporate profits. So manufacturing is, was still and is still important. I agree with you that the, um, the, uh, the non-manufacturing sector now has to be the focus of analysis of the economy. Can't, we can't just uh, leave that aside. Now, in the book I've written, just completed, I tried to, to, to spend a fair amount of time on it. The, the problem is, I, I think it's a very difficult problem, and I don't fully understand why non-manufacturers has not been able to do better, why services have not been able to increase their productivity faster to make possible higher profits, greater capital accumulation, and higher growth of wages. What seems to ha- be the, have been the case and be the case is that the ability of the, um, the American, uh, essentially capital and state, to drive down wages immediately, practically from the beginning of the fall in profitability, and to make wages less than zero growth outside of manufacturing for, for, you know, roughly between 1977 and 1997, encourage firms to substitute labor for capital. In other words, to turn to to labor-intensive modes of production. And so that means that um, productivity grows uh, very slowly. It's not just that the short run you're taking capital instead of workers, but when you're not continually using, bringing in more and more capital, you're foregoing the opportunity that usually comes with a rapid expansion of capital stock to innovate. Because usually in the course of, you know, essentially expansion, you learn by doing, you innovate. And so it seems to me that the U.S. has been victim by its low-wage, labor-intensive economy. And that has... I don't think there's been a lot of innovation in the last 25 years. It's, there, people consider spectacular. Well, productivity figures are not spectacular. Well, the, no, I'm saying you may not be increasing profits, but you're not innovation. But. Well, you, um, the America, I think it's probably here. Uh, productivity growth has not been very has not been very uh, rapid, in fact, um, and especially outside manufacturing. In manufacturing, it's been quite rapid. Uh, in fact, manufacturing productivity growth in the 90s was about as high as it was higher than it was at any other time. So the, and essentially, you have a high-tech manufacturing sector, but almost all of manufacturing is in one form or another high-tech. And so you've had tremendous advances there, but you haven't had much outside. The one exception is in retail uh, trade, where, you know, you have gotten the replacement of small, you know, retail uh, stores and so on by these big box things with a lot of uh, high-tech equipment. So that is an exception, and there has been significant productivity growth in retail trade, and in fact, that really 
manufacturing and retail trade were the two contributors to the speed up of productivity growth in the 90s. I don't know if that's continuing in retail trade, but the question is also, can it expand out beyond that in the service sector? Uh, my answer, I don't pretend, is, is complete, but that's the way I would, I would look at it, that the problem has been of raising profitability in services has been one of insufficient increase in productivity. And therefore, you have a huge weight on the system because the productivity, uh, wages have been kept down in this sector, and you have, therefore, a, a very slow, little, little stimulus from this gigantic sector. If they could raise productivity uh, more fast, uh, more rapidly outside of manufacturing, I think that would open up uh, a vista for much more impressive growth and perhaps some sort of solution to this problem. So you have a, maybe you have some crisis manufacturing in the short term, but beyond that, uh, broader, you know, more organic growth outside manufacturing that opens a new, a new, new boom. But I haven't seen it, and uh, this is a big question to, to, to answer. I, I, I emphasize, it's a question to answer, so you're right on target. Thank you.